This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I think this is the first time Josh Hawley has gotten a positive shout out on politicology. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite, Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president for the social policy and politics program at Third Way. She also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Lene, good morning. Welcome back. It's great to see you. So good to see your face. Also returning to the roundup is Al Cardenas. Al is a nationally recognized Cuban-American leader in law, business, and politics who served in the Reagan and H.W. Bush administrations. He's been recognized as one of the most influential people in Florida politics, and he's also a former chairman of the American Conservative Union and a two-term chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. Al, welcome back. Great to see you. Thank you. Good to be with both of you. And finally, also returning to the roundup is... Andy Kroll. Andy is an investigative reporter for ProPublica, where he covers voting, politics, and threats to democracy. He's the former Washington bureau chief for Rolling Stone magazine and has written for Mother Jones, National Journal, and the California Sunday Magazine. He's also the author of A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich in the Age of Conspiracy. Andy, welcome back to you. Always great to be here. Up first this week, we're going to dive into the Senate hearing on artificial intelligence and what it could mean for regulation and the use of AI in politics. Then we'll discuss the report from Special Counsel John Durham on the origins of the FBI's investigations into Donald Trump. Up next, we'll discuss the record high rates of depression among U.S. adults and the American Psychological Association warning about the harms of social media use for teenagers. And finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss President Biden's push to bridge the degree gap for non-college educated workers. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the top of today's show notes, and we'll dig in right after this. Okay, on Tuesday, the role and potential of regulation on artificial intelligence took center stage once again, this time at a Senate hearing. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, Christina Montgomery, who is the Chief Privacy and Trust Officer at IBM, and Gary Marcus, who's a Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Neuroscience at NYU, all testified at the hearing. Altman, of course, uh, got most of the attention. And we're really interested in the numerous ways AI can and will shape our political landscape. We've been talking about it quite a bit lately, from questions about automation and the workforce to how language models and deep fakes are going to shape campaigns and elections. But the big takeaway from this hearing was about regulation. And unlike some of the previous hearings with top uh, high-profile tech leaders like Meta co-founder Mark Zuckerberg or TikTok CEO Sho Chu, this hearing wasn't openly hostile. It was actually mostly congenial. Sam Altman actually called on Congress to regulate artificial intelligence. And here's a clip of what he said. 
we think that regulatory intervention by governments will be critical to mitigate the risks of increasingly powerful models. For example, the U.S. government might consider a combination of licensing and testing requirements for development and release of AI models above a threshold of capabilities. There are several other areas I mentioned in my written testimony where I believe that companies like ours can partner with governments, including ensuring that the most powerful AI models adhere to a set of safety requirements, facilitating processes to develop and update safety measures, and examining opportunities for global coordination. And as you mentioned, uh, I think it's important that companies have their own responsibility here, no matter what Congress does. This is a remarkable time to be working on artificial intelligence. But as this technology advances, we understand that people are anxious about how it could change the way we live. We are too. But we believe that we can and must work together to identify and manage the potential downsides so that we can all enjoy the tremendous upsides. So... Gang, I don't think anybody will be surprised that I've listened to uh, not just Sam Altman a lot recently, but but I'm in the dozens, many dozens of hours now of uh, of really deep conversations with lots of AI uh, thinkers, leaders, philosophers, scientists, etc. And um, I actually started out as very skeptical of Sam Altman, but. Over the last several weeks, I've really started to respect the way he's talking about some of the potential harms that could come from AI and how thoughtful he seems to be. And I wonder, Lene, I'd love, since this is about regulation, I'd love for you to kick this off um, and talk about how you think this more congenial dynamic between Congress and one of the real leaders in the AI space could impact these conversations about regulation and in general, how, how, how you're thinking about the prospect of Congress successfully coming up with regulations uh, that could work here. Yeah, I mean, I think the tone of those hearings and whether this Congress can actually get something across the finish line uh, to regulate AI are two very different <laughs> conversations. Um, you know, the devil is in all of the details here. Um, and I think one of the reasons that um, the tone was so much more congenial is that um, Sam knows that they don't have any pen to paper yet. There's nothing actually written down about what regulations might look like. There's very little chance that we'll actually um, see legislation that could, that could move. And so he has nothing to lose in looking like a good guy saying, yeah, sure, regulate me, go for it, because he knows there's very little chance anything will come of it. Um, and also he's at the beginning here, right? And so um, the the Facebooks of the world, the Amazons of the world and others, um, they're in the middle or, you know, towards the end in terms of um, there's already been a lot, uh, a lot of water under the bridge um, and a lot of bad blood and a lot of harm. Um, and so, uh, you know, they have to defend what they've already done, whereas Sam is able to come in and say, oh yeah, we're just getting started. Let's work on this together. So I think that um, also contributes. Um, but it's interesting to me when you read like all of the details of um, of these conversations, they had a public hearing and then they had a private meeting 
um, behind the scenes. And in the private meeting, apparently he was a little less (laughs) pro-regulation. So (laughs) I also think he's very um, savvy to know that it makes it makes people feel better for him to say, yes, please, you know, acknowledge the dangers that could come of this, the um, malfeasance, um, and I'd like to work together to regulate it. Um, But, you know, he might be a little less pro that when you actually um, get down to brass tacks. Um, the, the last piece, though, is that um, companies like to operate with certainty about what their regulatory environment is going to be. And one of the things I thought was really interesting was they were talking about, should we form an international body to regulate AI? That sounds like a great idea because clearly AI is not, you know, driven by country borders. But um, but that sounds like even more of a pipe dream to me than the idea of this Congress regulating on it. So I think if you know, if the AI community could get um, one set of regulations across the entire world and then be able to operate within a, you know, kind of structured regulatory environment where they know what the rules are, that would be a very different situation. That would be better for them than having, you know, say um, Montana ban TikTok and then Utah have different rules with um, youth access to social media. And, you know, that creates a real hard environment for companies. So, I think he's he's open to it um, in part uh, because he wants to look good, but in part because he also wants, you know, if they're going to make regulations, he'd rather they be informed by him and um, kind of set in a way that can apply across the world um, so they just have one set of rules. Al, I'm really curious about your thoughts on this and how or whether you think lawmakers and regulators are going to be able to navigate this in time, given the pace of change uh, when it comes to AI and also the, you know, the overwhelming um, pressures that industry is putting on AI to return, um, you know, to return gains. The VC, you know, the VC guys don't want to slow down. They don't want to pause. They were actively hostile to that, to that letter that, uh, and all of its signatories that suggested that we slow down or we take a six-month pause. I talked to one of the signatories of that letter. I wonder in general how you think about the ability of, of, uh, of Congress and, and, and legislators to, to get out in front of this, um, or, or are, are they doomed to be playing catch-up uh, even as some of the, the, the most negative aspects of AI sort of wreak havoc on society, our information landscape? Well, look, at the macro level, uh, the biggest challenge is what are adversaries doing with artificial intelligence? And, uh, of course, at these hearings, we haven't heard from national security intelligence analysts about where we are with respect to uh, artificial intelligence developed by the private sector. I'm hoping that uh, that the Defense Department and intelligence offices are also working on artificial intelligence. And I'm also hoping that we're getting a good read on what China, Russia, and other adversaries are doing regarding it. Uh, my concern uh, is, is more of an international aspect of it. I don't want the United States to look at this as a domestic issue on how do we regulate the private sector uh, without also balancing what is the international community doing, especially our adversaries, so we don't, by protecting our own national standards, we don't fall into a great 
national security disadvantage with our adversaries as they develop artificial security free of any boundaries. And then what will that look like? Will all of a sudden you have the private sector dollars gravitating to some of these international organizations that have been able to grow unimpeded by our regulatory uh, mandate? And so I, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do we create an environment uh, where the domestic market is protected from so many potential evils, while at the same time not falling behind from those adversarial countries that will not be impeded by any regulatory environment, uh, both from a global economy as well as as a global national security sense. So I, I'm at this point, I'm concerned, Ron, about balance. I'm concerned about how few our legislators will understand the whole package and be able to assimilate it and by how much local politics are going to play without thinking of the big picture. So that's where I am worried. Yeah, I I think that's fair. A couple of people have mentioned the, you know, the they they've offered uh correlates to, you know, the way the international community has uh come up with what have so far been pretty respected standards around uh, not pursuing certain kinds of uh, research in science, for example, certain kinds of genetic research um, and or uh, you know, n- nuclear weapons that we're at that level of um, potential severity for the human species. Um, I don't know how I don't know how realistic that is, given the sort of state of geopolitics. But um, but I do think that's probably the right um, the right way to weigh this threat and the uh, and the you know the potential upsides here. Andy, um, responding to a question from Josh Hawley. Altman said that the ability for large language models to manipulate and persuade and to engage in uh, one-on-one interactive disinformation, is how he put it, is one of his biggest concerns with the technology. And he called for regulation here. For example, making companies tell users when the information they're seeing is generated, um, expectations and regulations around what companies who build the model should disclose, whether or not their models can even do this. Uh, he did seem confident that people would be able to adapt fairly quickly. And he, he compared that adaptation to when people came to recognize that Photoshopped images were indeed Photoshopped, um, but that it would be like that just on steroids. So I wonder how you're thinking about the ability to differentiate between not just, you know, fact from fiction, but from human generated fiction, from AI generated fiction. We're already getting a, early glimpse at this because you have these tools that anyone can sign up for. Midjourney is one of them. There are the other, you know, basically like graphic illustrations, image-based AI that like the text-based AI basically draw on as much data as they can possibly scrape from the entirety of the internet in the visual sense, and then create this engine that allows you to, to in record speed, faster than you ever could before, create these artificial synthetic composite images. We were, you know, not that long ago talking about deep fakes and cheap fakes and all kinds of other reality bending or breaking uh, advances in images and in video and how those might get applied to the political context, policy context, democratic open society context. The rise of these, the advent, the use of these, you know, super advanced uh, AI tools now, I mean, 
they, they are, we're, you know, cheap fakes and deep fakes are, we may keep the language, but that is already yesterday's news. We are entering an entirely new terrain, just given how powerful and based on what we've seen, how convincing some of these tools can be. I mean, there was a clip, you know, set of images making the rounds around the time of former President Trump's um, appearance in court in New York, where he was, it was like a, you know, sort of like a, a, a tussle, a, a physical conflict between him and law enforcement. And it looked really freaking real. It was frightening, truly frightening how real those images looked, even though they were absolutely fake and created by someone who had entered a, a very basic prompt and got these extremely realistic images spit out right away. That is the world that we are in. And it is unlike even the kinds of things we were debating, talking about in 2020 or 2022. However, I am really encouraged building on something that Lene said, that this conversation is happening in Congress now, so soon after ChatGPT mid-journey, these other tools are becoming so broadly accessible. We're having the conversation now before the, if there is a problem, before problems, before problematic uses have appeared in a huge way in an election or in some kind of other high stakes context. That did not happen with social media. It did not happen with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube until real problems started happening. And those problems, of course, cut across ideology, left, right, DNR, whatever. It's, it's all across the board. So I'm encouraged that Josh Hawley is asking that question. And I'm glad that we have elected officials who are with it enough, who are fluent enough in, in these emerging technologies to ask those kinds of questions because we're getting out ahead of it now. And, and that is really encouraging to see because as we saw with social media, once the horse has left the barn, it's basically impossible to catch up with it again. And now is the time to be talking about these things with AI. I think this is the first time Josh Hawley has gotten a positive shout out on politicology. I would also like <laughs> think, to request that it, it might, might be, be the yeah. last. Can it please be the last time we say something nice about Josh Hawley? But you know, imagine the imagine the positive potentials, right? Artificial intelligence can be the tool that allows uh, rural communities to be up to speed with diagnostics uh, in terms of healthcare. Artificial intelligence can provide us with a much better summary of who's out there, who's likely to be a candidate for uh, these mass shootings. Uh, you remember, Ron, that movie uh, about uh, arresting people for crimes they haven't yet committed? Minority Report. Minority yeah. Report. There you go, Minority <laughs> Report. Well, imagine you know how far can that go now in terms of spotting these potential mass shooters? And what can society do about that in a country that's uh, the rule of law is pretty well set on on what can you do to those people before they actually do something insane? And so there are so many applications to this moving forward that are mostly good. But uh, but I, I don't know that I'm smart enough to start identifying all of those things. I do know that responsible corporations are really ahead of the game in terms of artificial intelligence. Uh, IBM and the Cleveland Clinic reached an agreement to, to uh, combine their resources with artificial intelligence regarding 
hard to define rare diagnostics. I mean, there are so many good things that can happen from reaching beyond our own capabilities. And how do we regulate that? I, uh, uh, I, I just have a feeling that the artificial intelligence world and the scientists are going to be way ahead of those who are uh, those of us who are involved with public policy and what's the best bet. Lene, I want to I want to sort of have you close out this segment for us with sort of how you're going to be watching uh, developments, what question what questions you have now, and how you'll be watching developments and sort of how Congress approaches regulation. But I want to first, um, you know, with to Al's point about the scientific community and the AI researchers who've been working on this. In that community, there has been a raging debate about whether and how to release these tools into the wild. And what was so controversial and why I was so skeptical of Sam's approach in the in the early days uh, was that they that they just they they chose the path of releasing it soon so that uh, people could get their hands on it early. And his defense of that was, "Look, this is coming." Uh, these the the pace of change is is extreme and the more time we can give society to adapt to get comfortable with how much how how much different their lives are going to be not in not in years but in months uh the better and the better the more time we have we give to um regulators lawmakers to get their heads around this and start thinking about it and that that that's persuasive i'm compelled by by that approach at the same time these researchers in these communities have developed tools that even they cannot explain. There are things that these, that these large language models or golems can do that the people who created them cannot explain. They shouldn't be able to do the things they can do. For example, asking it a question in a language it was not trained on and getting a response in that language. Uh, back in 2014, one of the very early, uh, early you know, predecessors of ChatGPT was trained uh, to predict the next um, letter in the next character in Amazon reviews. And what they ended up with was full-blown sentiment analysis. The, and to hear the, the, the very deep thinkers in, in this domain say and admit there's no reason that these tools should be able to do what they're doing or we can't explain it, just gives me a lot of, a lot of pause. So I, I lay all that at your feet, and I just wonder, as you're as you're looking at the the whole issue, what are the questions you have about you know about how this how this moves forward? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, to the previous uh, sentiment about Josh Hawley, um, right now this has not become a super partisan issue. There does seem to be um, kind of uniquely uh, an approach on on both sides of the aisle to say, all right, we, we got to deal with this. And um, so I just wonder how and when that overlays with our partisan politics. So, you know, the um, when when you think about the pace of change, as you said, um, the the pace of change is going to require not not a new law every time these technologies change. You can't do that, right? When Congress passes a law, um, oftentimes even if they make it, um, you know, a authorization, um, they'll do a reauthorization ten years later. Okay, 10 years from now, 
we have no idea what this is going to look like. So, you know, legislating on AI every 10 years is not going to work, which means that you have to set up a structure where people can in real time um, have the authority to update and change these regulations. Well, you may remember that the very conservative Supreme Court um, has been striking down over and over again and is about to likely issue another case in this direction agency's ability to do that, right? Saying that Congress can't actually um, give over um, the power to um, make those kinds of big decisions to an agency, that it's unconstitutional for them to do so, um, and that the administrations and agencies cannot act in that way. So I just wonder, you know, how does this interact with like the major questions doctrine, which says the EPA can't do a bunch of things, or there's a case called Chevron that is, um, you know, a, a um, kind of foundational principle that says that agencies are empowered to do certain things and that their judgment should not be um, overturned in, in these areas where they have expertise. Well, the Supreme Court's striking all that down in real time. And so I don't know how much while there is openness to talking about regulation of AI, is there openness within the Republican Party to delegate the uh, decision-making that needs to happen to an agency body? I don't know once we start talking about that. And then when you move that to, to an international body, that's where I think it's really, really difficult to think that this Trumpist Republican Party is going to be like, yeah, let's let the international intelligentsia make these decisions. Like that seems... <laughs> That it, you know, kind of goes against the the way that they think. So I, I just and wonder when that's going to happen. Yeah, those are, you know, you finally entered into kind of the thematic of uh, the discourse in our program, which is politics. And my greatest concern is how low can we go regarding artificial intelligence? It's such a great fear tool to motivate the base that will never fully understand it as we have a difficult time coping with it ourselves. And so instilling fear on the voters is, is so easy as, as more anecdotal evidence comes forward that can really be used to, you know, to scare the average voter in America, whether it's to the left or to the right or wherever. And I'm just concerned about how some people in Congress are going to get ahead of this thing who they themselves don't know anything about it or its ramifications, and how much are we going to simplify our solutions to fit that fear model? And uh, how are we going to restrain ourselves uh, on all the things I said at the beginning of the program? The political considerations of this and the damage that can be done in so many different areas are very real. Okay, let's turn to the Durham report. On Monday, the DOJ released the final report from special counsel John Durham after a four-year-long investigation into the origin of the FBI's probe of links between Russian officials and Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. So Durham concluded that the FBI, quote, discounted or willfully ignored material information that countered the narrative that Trump's campaign was colluding with Russia. He wrote that the FBI suffered from confirmation bias and a lack of analytical rigor as it investigated leads into Trump's ties to Russia. Much of the FBI's conduct in the report, 
uh, had been previously known and had been denounced uh, in the 2019 Justice Department Inspector General's report. It definitely didn't uncover the uh, crime of the century, as Donald Trump predicted that it would, but the report may fuel rather than quell partisan debate about the investigation and the investigation of the investigation. So I wanted to dive into what we've learned about the FBI's conduct in 2016 in the IG's report and in this report. So Durham wrote that he was not recommending any wholesale changes to FBI rules for politically sensitive investigations and for national security wiretaps. Those rules have already been tightened since 2017. The FBI has implemented dozens of corrective actions since the 2019 report was issued. Uh, Durham wrote that their investigation revealed that senior FBI personnel displayed a lack of analytical rigor to the information they received, quote, especially information received from politically affiliated persons and entities. This information in part triggered and sustained Crossfire Hurricane and contributed to the subsequent need for Special Counsel Mueller's investigation. The New York Times pointed out that using the word triggered echoed Trump's accusation that the FBI opened their investigation in July 2016 based on the Steele dossier. Uh, The Steele dossier is the opposition research that was indirectly funded by Hillary Clinton's campaign and which was later discredited. The report also acknowledged that the dossier did not reach those investigators until mid-September and that the FBI opened the investigation based on a tip from an Australian diplomat. So while the 2019 IG's report did find that that Australian diplomat's tip had been sufficient to lawfully open the full counterintelligence inquiry, Durham criticized the Bureau for relying on the tip without more closely scrutinizing uh, Papadopoulos's credibility. He did acknowledge, Durham, that the FBI had sufficient reason to open a preliminary assessment or preliminary investigation, but concluded that they should not have used it to open a full investigation. He also noted that former Deputy Director of the Counterintelligence Division, Peter Strask, had, quote, pronounced hostile feelings toward Trump. The report was also highly critical of the Steele dossier and its use to support probable cause in the FBI's FISA application, targeting Trump advisor Carter Page. Uh, So Durham sent the report to Attorney General Merrick Garland on Friday. Garland sent it to top members of the House and Senate Judiciary Committees Monday afternoon and released the report with no additions, redactions, or other modifications, unlike the way Barr handled the Mueller report. This also marks the end of Durham's four-year-long investigation that concluded that included one conviction, which was a guilty plea from a former FBI lawyer, Kevin Kleinsmith, on charges that he altered an email to support the surveillance application. And that was uncovered in the 2019 IG report and resulted in probation. Okay, so there's a lot here. Um, but I want to start with public trust, Andy. How do you think this report impacts public trust in the FBI? You know, I don't think it is going to impact public trust in the FBI that much. I think that there are multiple audiences, discrete different audiences who have received the news about the report, probably haven't read the 306-page report itself, but heard about it on television or online, in the newspaper, wherever. I think that those who were already hugely skeptical of the FBI will read the report and feel confirmed in their convictions that the FBI is corrupt, that it is or was in the tank for Democrats or Hillary Clinton, anti-Trump. I think people who thought the Durham investigation was unnecessary or a politically infused wild goose chase will 
not take seriously the findings of special counsel Durham and say, you know, I don't, I, I never believed this guy in the first place. And why would I believe him now? Um, you know, I mean, that's obviously kind of a realistic, maybe even a bit cynical take, but I, I just don't see the report moving the needle at all in large part because having read the report and followed the investigation for four plus years and $6.5 million now, there's nothing really new in this report. You know, the, the, there was real misconduct, failure to follow policies, failure by individuals in the FBI and the Justice Department, all wrapped up in the crossfire hurricane rush investigation and so on. But we knew all that already. The 2019 DOJ Inspector General's report was brutal in ferreting out mistakes made all across the, the federal law enforcement bureaucracy related to Trump and Russia. And those were really important things. And the FBI has said it's instituted a dozens of changes in response. Justice Department has done the same. You know, I think uh, you would hope that the, the Durham investigation for as long as it went on, for as much money as it expended and manpower it enlisted, would have actually found something else, would have contributed. But instead, it kind of feels like a uh, a rehash of the 2019 IG report with some other stylistic sprinklings in there. So I don't see it moving the needle that much. Honestly, it feels like quite the um, anticlimactic end to, as you said, what the former president said would reveal the, the crime of the century. So I don't know. I just, it, 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 it's left me kind of feeling empty to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Al, uh, one of the, one of the frustrations I have with this, with this, uh, with this investigation and this report is, is, is the way it's getting filtered by, by both sides, especially by Republicans, because it is, it is very well known documented that Russia actively interfered in, in our, in our electoral process. And yet, uh, it, it now seems, you know, to conflate that with, um, the absence of, of collusion and FBI, um, uh, sort of misconduct in the investigation of Russian ties seems to diminish, uh, the very real threat that Russia continues to pose in, in how they meddle in our affairs. How are you thinking about the way this message just completely gets conflated, uh, especially on the right? There's a reason why we have three branches of government, so we have some balance. The FBA is part of a different branch of government. Uh, and it, since it's law enforcement, all agencies that are law enforcement, from your local police station to the FBI, are, you know, pyramid-oriented. In other words, People are used in law enforcement as well as in the military to react and be disciplined by messages from the very top. The people are not given liberty to go beyond what the very top tells them to do in terms of where this investigation ought to be headed. Uh, I thought the analysis uh, you just gave, Nick, was right on point. It was, it was very well described and thought out. My sense is I got a lot more out of what was going on with Russia, out of the, you know, out of the criminal trials that were taking place. Because that was, you know, that was the FBI provided prosecutors information. We had defense working on their own arguments. And then we have 
and uh, and judge decide. And it was pretty obvious to me whether it was Michael Flynn or or you know some of the other participants in this process that there were links with Russia and there was information being uh, shared with Russia and Russia did participate through some venues. I mean that's so the Durham report. Uh, you know, as to how complicit was the, was the FBI in the political process, I, you know, I I thought it was, uh, I mean, those findings, I, I agreed with. I don't need to rehash the description that was given. I thought that was a perfect analysis. A lot of ho-hum, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Lene, Jim Jordan <laughs> chairs the House Judiciary Committee, and he's already said, He's going to call Durham to testify next week. So my question is, how do you expect this uh, report to sort of fuel the circus shenanigans um, on the, in the House Crazy Caucus? I mean, they have so many shenanigans already. It's like, you know, just one more tent in the circus. Uh, you know, I think it, it's interesting just uh, to pull the curtain back for our listeners. Um, every time we have a weekly roundup, uh, the lovely producers here at Politicology send us a list of topics with some suggested reading. And I have usually already read every single thing that they've sent me in any week. This time I was like, what's the Durham report? And I have a question about if I don't know what that is, like I'm pretty sure most voters are not going to know what that is. And it just really tells you how kind of hashtag old news this is, right? And I think that's basically what the FBI's response was. They were like, thanks, hashtag old news. Like this is stuff we've already fixed, (laughs) And just with everything, all of the scandals and everything that's, that's you know, circulating around in politics, I'm like, 2016? Was that even a year? Like, what? That was pre-pandemic? That was, oh, yeah, that's right. We did have an election in 2016. I barely remember it because so much has happened since then. So it just, the, you know, propensity of this to impact any votes in 2024 is negative zero. Um, Sure, it'll give Jim Jordan some more things to yell about. But like, honestly, this is what he's yelling about instead of like the border or, you know, student loan forgiveness or attacking trans kids. I think it's kind of benign. It's like, it's just a nothing burger. So I'm, I I look forward to the, to the hearings, um, on this nothing burger and, you know, we'll not pay attention to them just as I've not paid attention to these clips all week. On Tuesday, the American Psychological Association issued a recommendation for guiding teenagers' social media use. And it's the first time the APA has issued such a recommendation for teens. They recommended that adolescents be routinely screened for problematic social media use. That's a quote. Um, Like whether it impacts their sleep or physical activity, whether it affects their schooling, whether they lie about their social media use. They also recommended that parents limit or stop their child from being exposed to content about suicide, self-harm, disordered eating, racism, and bullying. That may prove difficult since there's a recent survey showing that 40% of teenage girls see images and videos related to suicide at least once a month on Instagram and TikTok. A third of them say they see content related to eating disorders at least once a month on Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, and YouTube. 
One of the recommendations for parents is to discourage the use of social media for comparison, especially around appearance-related content. Especially among girls, this has been linked with poor body image and depressive symptoms. Some psychologists criticize the report for not having enough tangible, actionable advice, like explaining where parents can find social media training for their children. And one therapist who focuses on treating teens with eating disorders pointed out that one of the big challenges for parents is that their kids generally have a much better understanding of the platforms than they do, which should come as no surprise. This comes as anxiety levels among teenagers are hitting record highs. Last fall, there was a meta-analysis, which is sort of a a study of a whole bunch of studies in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics that showed 20% of teenagers worldwide were experiencing anxiety symptoms. That's up from 12% in 2012. Um, Linnea, I'm curious about how you're looking at this issue broadly. You know, I think it's it's alarming to see that, you know, the the levels of impact that both um, negative social media have and also just the levels of anxiety and depression amongst all Americans and particularly teens um, are are continuing to go up is is really shocking because I think we all saw some of these numbers happening during the height of COVID. And and we kind of said, wow, that's awful, but at least it's like, it, it, there's a reason for it, right? We're all locked in our houses. We can't see anyone. Um, and so hopefully this will just fix itself when we get kind of to a, a new level of of endemic instead of pandemic. But it hasn't. It's actually gotten worse. And I think that is really shocking. There's there's numbers out this week um, that show you know about a third of uh, a third of the respondents said that they um, have been treated for depression. Um, that's a lot of people, and I think that that's really you know really disconcerting. The thing that I found frustrating about this report, though, was it was basically like, "Hey, parents, do a better job." And as a person who, my partner has a 13-year-old and a today 16-year-old, happy birthday, Carter, um, like there's already enough to deal with. And, you know, the idea that one of their recommendations was don't let kids have any social media before 13, that means essentially you're isolating them from their friends. That is how they communicate. They don't text. They talk on, on different apps. And so... Now you're saying you're not going to let your kid talk to their friends until they're 13 years old? Like, no, that's that's a social isolation in itself. And then they say, well, um, when they are on social media until I think they said 15 or 16, um, you should be with them at all times. Are you on drugs? Like, that's not a thing. That is not a thing. And I I just think that it is um, it is really frustrating to watch. Um, this impetus be put on parents that like they need to do a better job of this instead of looking at the algorithms that are feeding this content to teenagers. And these algorithms are, you know, imprinting in their brains um, and feeding them more and more and more damaging content. And so if you, you know, Google anorexia, or I guess Google's not the right thing, but I'm old. So if you, you know, search anorexia on whatever new app you're using, chat GPT, chat GPT, anorexia, like <laughs> it'll, it'll serve you more. Right. And, and that is really horrifying and it is not yeah. feasible for parents to be the only 
thing that is policing this activity. I mean, just think about you're at school, um, you know, 13-year-olds know how to hack their school computer to be able to watch YouTube on their school computer. Like, this is a regular thing that happens every single day yeah. <laughs> in the middle school down the street. Yeah. So yeah. how am I supposed to be there with them while they're in school? I just, it's completely unrealistic to say that parents need to do that level of policing. And and I think it really, um, it's unfair to expect that that should be the solution to this problem. Yeah. Andy, I want to come back to algorithms in just a moment. But Al, what did you make of this argument that these teens have a better grasp on the platforms than their parents and that making it a much harder thing to monitor and control? Well, the, uh, you know, the bottom line of this whole thing is at what age can you properly absorb the information that you're receiving? And uh, that is a, you know, bottom line reason why this depression and every other social challenge that that young people are having you know i i had five children and i thought i was a pretty progressive parent but the boundaries of school parenting friends i mean it was so much easier to be a, a good provider of guidance at that point now they say that the number one product that children at the age of nine or ten ask for their birthdays is an iphone and that is the you know the first connector to all of these things and i don't care how many devices you come up with to restrict access you know i just perfectly talked about the youtube access in class uh, you know my sense is that uh, once a child has that iphone in their hands or once their computers in the hands of school or friends or colleagues or older brothers or sisters you're automatically traveling that whole universe of of social information at an age when it's not when you're not ready to absorb it properly and that to me is the number one reason where why we're having this depression and other social you know social challenges that young people are facing how do you control that in a free society it's it's a challenge i'm not sure i understand in terms of how how to handle yeah so on the algorithms front, Andy, um, you know, as, I, as I mentioned in the first segment, the heads of Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram and TikTok have both been witnesses at hostile congressional hearings. Um, and Tristan Harris, uh, in a presentation earlier this year, basically, as it, was, it was actually about AI, but he was talking about humanity's first contact with social media uh, with, with with AI as social media, and we lost that round. And I think what we're seeing now is, that, I mean, this is this topic is one way in which we've lost that round. The negative externalities of the way these algorithms are trained to work. And there's a Gallup poll that came out this week that showed record high levels of depression. We're not talking about kids. Almost 18% of adults reported that they are currently being treated for depression, and that's up seven points since 2015. Um, nearly 30% of adults have reported that they've been diagnosed with depression at some point in their lifetime, and that's up 10 points since 2015. So, you know, it, I guess to hearken back to our first segment about AI and our ability to reckon with what's to come, what hope? do you have, could we have, 
of doing that successfully when it doesn't seem that we've learned our lesson with regards to social media, which is in itself uh, a form of artificial intelligence? I think we have to look back at the 10 or 15 years of the social media era, if you want to date it back to when YouTube launches or when Facebook launches, and really do, I mean, ideally, it would almost be one of these iconic style commissions about what happened, warnings missed, mistakes made, advances and in, in, in positive outcomes as well, and try to capture that knowledge because we know we're going to need it pointing forward, getting back to what we talked about at the top of the show with artificial intelligence and chat GPT. The algorithms are obviously a part of it. I think even things like the design of these platforms, I think, you know, Tristan Harris has done interesting work about this. How do you make even small design changes to make these apps less addictive, to make them less grabby, to, to, to sort of pull the, the tether out of people's heads a little bit um, in a way that, you know, the government and private industry were thinking about how to make cigarettes less appealing in the heyday of, of smoking. Um, the thing that I struggle with though, is like the algorithm question, you playing with the algorithms will change what people see in their feeds, whatever, where they get their, their social media content. And, you know, maybe that solves the problem of say extremism. Maybe it solves a problem of, um, you know, really harmful personal behavior, suicidal ideation, eating disorders, things like that. But also at the core though, social media is, you know, you're, you're, you're scrolling through it. You're looking at all the other cool things that people you know and don't know are doing. It's that sort of social envy. It's the FOMO. It's all of these sort of fundamental human emotions. And I don't see how the algorithm question addresses that because you can't change the algorithm to make someone feel less FOMO. I mean, that's kind of what social media mostly is, um, especially you know for someone who's not really using it to, to cover news, to read news all the time, like a lot of us do. So I, I think you've got to not only look at the design and the algorithm, I think you've got to really bring a sort of a public health mission to this question. You know, take, take the sort of public health mobilization that we saw, say, around the COVID pandemic, try to take those kinds of resources, those kinds of bright minds and apply them to this problem. Because I just don't think the techie solutions are going to solve this spike in mental health trouble. I think you've got to bring other things to bear. And it's got to be more than, you know, regulation, changing algorithms and so on. It's got to be public health psychiatrists, psychologists, experts in these fields, epidemiologists even, because this is a real crisis and it's pointing really in the wrong direction and no amount of fiddling at the margins is going to is going to stop that. Well, and I want to just add one thought to that. I think that's totally right. Um, that lawmakers have seen the problem, and a bunch of their reaction has been, "Okay, let's ban it, or let's um, you know put parents um, more in charge of it." Those are the two responses, basically, that that lawmakers have gone 
down. And, um, and I think that there's real downsides to those, those options too. You know, we've just seen, um, a couple of States, um, you know, Montana just banned TikTok. Uh, we've got, um, Utah put very extreme limits on what, um, young people can access online and puts, uh, a lot of the impetus on parents, um, to be able to see what their children are doing online. And I just want to say, you know, if you're a gay kid in Utah, like, you might not want your parents to know everything that you're searching online. And I think we need to acknowledge that for, you know, I grew up in a very rural area um, in, you know, a very conservative place. Um, for some people, social media or the internet provide access to a community and to recognition that you don't otherwise get. And you know, having someone who is struggling with their sexual orientation or their gender identity or their beliefs around religion or, you know, all of these things that we struggle with in, um, in middle school and in life, um, we, you know, we don't want to erase all of that possible connectivity and possible upside for, um, kids who are, who are working through some of these things that frankly, if I was able to, um, feel more connected to, uh, an LGBT community when I was growing up, I probably would have better mental health right now. So I think we need to make sure that, you know, the hammer we're bringing to this is, um, you know, as Andy said, really focused on what's good for public health and mental health and not just banning something because we're afraid of what might happen on it and and not just saying, you know, parents should be up in their kids' business in every single way. Like they're... I couldn't have, um, my parents couldn't hear me when I was on the phone with my friends at, at 13. So why should I be reading all of their text messages? You know, it's just, there's, there's a balance here that we need to think about and we need to allow kids to be able to have some of those conversations without the view of their parents, especially parents that might not be supportive of who they are. Okay. Now that we are up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what we're watching. Al, what did you bring for us? Well, I'm, uh, I'm looking at India. Uh, you know, I listen a lot uh, nowadays to all of the business channels uh, and, and at a time when I think they're the key to politics in 23 and 24, inflation, its causes, things of that nature, and in addition, my own investments. And uh, and to me, the key to the future uh, for the United States are better relationships with India. You know, this president is providing, and I think to, uh, in so many respects, rightfully, how do we disengage more economically with China, especially in things that are pretty significant for us? Well, we got to find a replacement if we're going to be globally competitive from a pricing standpoint. Uh, we have a good relationship with India when it comes to the service industry, but it's non-existent when it comes to manufacturing goods, chips, things of that nature. And in addition to that, the key now, in my opinion, to global balance uh, with respect to our military wherewithal as China grows stronger militarily is having a, an India that's willing to be more of a partner with us than with China. And, uh, you know, they have this huge border with China. We're already seeing military skirmishes between them and the border. And uh, India, Indonesia, Malaysia. But I mean, you're talking about 
a quarter of the world's population pretty soon. They said in 20 years, China's going to go below 1 billion in population, and India will be at a billion four. Somehow, some way, we've neglected all of the things that we need to do to embrace India in so many more ways. And I'm talking about not just government, but the private sector in the U.S. as well. That, to me, is the greatest opportunity for true political balance in the world and for us to have more safety with regards to dealing with China. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good one. Lene, what'd you bring? I have two quick things, um, both of which are things that I think are um, kind of counter to the common wisdom in politics right now. So um, one is last week, the um, Title 42 restriction at the border um, was ended. And um, so, you know, everybody on Fox News has been screaming about this for, you know, two years, basically, um, saying that there was going to be a flood of folks coming to the border because now it was open. The Biden administration has been very clear that the border is not, in fact, open. Um, and uh, in fact, that Title 42, because it just allowed people to um, be kicked out immediately, uh, but without consequence, really, for trying to cross the border, um, was making things worse. And so what we've seen is that the Biden administration's policies that they have implemented on the border um, and their communication um, around deterring migrants from coming um, has worked. And we have not seen the surge that the Republicans have been threatening um, over and over again. And so I just really um, would would caution folks to just watch what's actually happening at the border right now. And the, the Biden administration has said, if you cross the border illegally, you will be deported and you will not be able to uh, reapply to come back to the United States. That is a super effective message. It's clear that the cartels and the traffickers and others have gotten that. I'm sure they will try to figure out other ways to get around it. But for now, the catastrophe has not come to pass that that has been warned about. And then the other piece is... um, we were watching the Philly mayoral race this this week, and uh, you know we've seen a lot of um, interesting outcomes in uh, big big city mayoral races where crime has been the real focus. And um, AOC and Bernie Sanders went all in on this. They were like, "Yo, Philly." Super blue city. We're going to get this one. Uh, you know, went for a super progressive activist um, in the Democratic primary, and they they like showed up and did rallies with this person. They were all in. Their candidate got twenty percent, twenty percent of the Democratic primary. Four in five Democratic primary voters in the very heavily. Uh, people of color, blue city of Philadelphia said, no, thank you, AOC and Bernie Sanders. I actually want somebody who, uh, you know, has a more reasonable um, agenda to make our city safe. And I just think it's yet another example of how, you know, the the far left is very, very loud on Twitter. And then whenever we vote, it turns out nobody really likes them. We had a similar issue in Jacksonville in Florida the mayor of Jacksonville, That's probably right. one of our one or two strongest conservative voting blocks in the state where a Democrat lady uh, beat uh, beat the uh, Republican uh, challenger uh, who was supported by Ron DeSantis and, and Donald Trump in a very interesting resulting election, uh, totally unexpected. So there was a lot of social pushback in, in the county of Duval as well. 
Andy, what did you bring for us? Like Lene, two two things to watch. One is a bit obvious, but this debt ceiling battle going on right now, I feel like it has not maybe gotten quite as much attention outside of the Beltway as uh, past battles have going into different previous presidential administrations. But the economy is in a weird place right now, in some regards, a fragile place right now. A debt ceiling catastrophe would probably make the economy not just more weird, but could really do damage. And, you know, I've been talking to some economic forecasters, people who study past debt ceiling showdowns, and, you know, they worry this one could be one of the worst if it becomes a, you know, if the talks break down, a deal is not made, things get really ugly. Big test for the president, big test for the new speaker, of course. So watching that one closely in the near term and then somewhat more long term, keep an eye out for this case the Supreme Court agreed to hear about a redistricting dispute in South Carolina. Redistricting, a huge but often overlooked issue, big implications for how our democracy works. Why I'm particularly interested in this one is a colleague of mine here at ProPublica, Marilyn Thompson, wrote a very good story about these contested maps in South Carolina drawn by the Republicans in the majority in South Carolina. However, as we reported, as Marilyn reported, a lot of influence on that map by a very important Democrat, Congressman Jim Clyburn, big ally of President Biden's, helped really then-candidate Biden win the South Carolina primary, sets him on the path to winning the whole thing. We reported on how Congressman Clyburn actually had a very influential but kind of behind-the-scenes role in helping draw those contested maps, a role that might now be getting more scrutiny if the Supreme Court looks into what he and his office did as part of this case. So that'll come later this year, but definitely one to watch for. Okay, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to discuss Biden's messaging to non-college-educated voters, where can everybody find you on the internet? Do you want to be found on the internet these days, Al? Well, I have left the internet uh, since November, and uh, and I, I just uh, reopened my Twitter account today knowing that you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> so I have a Twitter account, and uh, as of today, uh, back uh, back on the but I can tell you those uh, those nine months or eight months have been very emotionally settling. Uh, I have found myself <laughs> in a better place, but I understand its importance, and so I've rejoined. I've I've I feel yeah. I don't really tweet much anymore, but I do I do occasionally open it just to check DMs and stuff. But yeah, I'm I'm with you, Lenny. How about you? Well, I traffic in ideas, so I have to be found on the internet. Uh, you can find my ideas at at uh, thirdway.org, or you can find me on Twitter, but I mostly tweet about sparkle shoes. So if that interests you, I'm at Lene Erickson. <laughs> I'm here for the sparkle shoe content. Uh, Andy, how about you? Until I take a eight-month break from social media like Al did, which I probably should, I am mostly on Twitter at Andy Kroll. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. 
If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.